Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. You can also go to Twitter. I do have a Twitter. It's EBR underscore VFR. Um, I don't really go there. I'm going to admit it. I will go someday, I promise. But today is not that day. Because, I'm not going to lie, things are pretty grim out there. COVID-19 continues to soar in the U.S. and to be used as a political football rather than as a rallying cry for solidarity despite our differences. I don't know that there's any other country in, in the entire world that could make wearing a mask a political statement and not just a easy way in which to protect you and your loved ones from potentially getting a deadly disease. It's just absolutely mind-boggling to me. In other news, global warming continues apace with new record methane emissions having been recorded last year, while the current, uh, what I would consider despot in charge of the United States, brags about rolling back environmental protections in the name of business and the almighty dollar. Elephants are dropping dead from an unknown cause in Africa, and I've been going crazy trying to deal with COVID-19 related changes at my day job. And to add insult to injury, I have to report that despite some reprisals, the Mars InSight heat probe, aka the Mole, is no longer burrowing into the Mars Martian surface again. NASA has decided to take a break <laughs> on trying to drive the Mole into the surface of the planet and is freeing up the rover's robotic arm for other tasks. It turns out that the area is covered not in the loose regolith that, Na- that the NASA team imagined would be there, but rather something called Duracrust, which obviously already doesn't sound good. Uh, It's a cement-like mixture in which granules stick together. And so in a blog post, uh, the DLR instrument lead, Tillman Spoon, noted, when we looked at the images that had been sent to Earth after the hammering session, we had to conclude that having the mole two or three centimeters deeper in and below the surface was not providing the necessary friction, even when helped with pushing on the regolith. This result of the free mole test was, of course, not quite what we had hoped for, but we cannot say that it came as a su- complete surprise. After all, we are continuing to fight against the missing friction on the mole hull. The test supports our earlier conclusions that the cohesive duracrust is unusually thick, at least based on what we previously knew about Mars, and that it must be quite rigid. And so part of the problem, too, is that the scoop of the arm is actually obscuring the view of the mole. So once the arm is retracted, the team will actually be able to take stereoscopic images of the pit and be able to measure the depth of the probe and see how the shape of the pit may have changed based on this last bit of activity. So maybe there's still hope.
a next move might be to use the scoop to shovel loose material into the hole to hopefully create the friction that is needed to allow the mold to operate as it was designed. The team will resume in August and let's hope that something works out this next time. Now the arm itself will take a selfie of the lander in order to view how much dust has accumulated on the solar panels, which will help them accumulate, will help them calculate how much daily power the lander still retains. So as you know, there is some issue with uh, dust on Mars. Uh, you may have heard once or twice. And so, yeah, that is a big problem. And so they are going to try to see if the panels have been covered in some amount of dust. We know that a dust storm did go over the InSight lander, but it doesn't seem to have done that much um, to affect the lander's ability to have a good power output. So it should be okay, but they obviously need to continue to monitor it. Okay, so the arm will also be used to capture images of meteors streaking across the Martian sky in order to help researchers better determine the rate at which meteorites hit this part of the planet's surface. The data will then be cross-referenced with the lander's seismometer, and so that will again give them a better picture of what's going on in this region of the planet. And so, of course, remember that the other instruments have been doing great work. So while this is a sad setback, once again, it is not a total loss. And so we have to just have a little bit of faith that maybe it'll work out. And even if it never works out, even if the mole never manages to break through the uh to the surface, break through this surface uh, concretion and actually get down to where it needs to be, the InSight lander will still have done a ton of great science. And so we just have to be really, just, just focus on the good. Um, and thinking of focusing on the good, we're going to do our best to try and move on from sad and depressing things, as I always try to do, because... I'm trying to, both for myself and for you, uh, remind us all that there are good things and interesting out th things out there um, and that we shouldn't just lie down and give up on this whole experiment with humanity. Um, though I have to say, I've been thinking about it and I always think that if I was an eccentric millionaire and I had all the money in the world, what I would probably do right now is start going to places and putting up a chart showing the uh, a bar chart with columns showing the geological ages of the earth and try to explain to people that see this entire column here in the middle that's when the dinosaurs ruled Dinosaurs lived on this planet for almost an entire, and in fact, probably on the, at least on the one that I have um, on my particular bulletin board, lived for an entire geological column. And humans have lived on this earth in, uh, 
if you were using the one that I have on my um, bulletin board, which is a standard eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, that the human civilization has been on the earth for, if you were to take a pencil and make a medium sized mark, not too thin, but not completely on the side of the pencil, that's about how long humans have been uh, modern in a way in which to affect civilization in any kind of way. And we have managed to do so much damage to the world in so little time. And I don't think that a lot of people truly understand how tenuous and short our time on this planet has been. And maybe that would give them a better perspective of how we really, really, really need to focus on two things. Fixing the planet in the sense of, A, first, stop doing things that we shouldn't be doing, like drilling for oil and gas, um, having coal-fired plants and things like that, and two, start trying to reverse some of the things we've been doing um, and actually start to try and rebuild ecosystems. And then two, that we really need to be better to one another. Um, and, you know, things right now are looking bleak. Um, I'm not going to lie. They just are. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard about the recent reports coming out of Seattle, for instance, where it turns out that apparently America now has secret police. Um, so it's pretty grim, but I do try really hard to believe that we can get through this and that, um, you know, the the arc of justice bends towards freedom, even if that uh, arc is measured in microns rather than even millimeters. Um, we just have to believe that at some point people will come to a place where they understand that it's more important to uh, be part of a civilization than to be part of a tribe or a state or a nation or anything like that, to be part of the human race. And I know that sounds schmaltzy, but that's where we're, that's where we're at these days. <laughs> I cannot help that. All right. But as I said, we are moving on now and we're going to, we've got a bunch of stories about animals and ancient humans or not so ancient humans, but still uh, definitely not modern humans. And we are going to dive into that and we're going to leave the world as it is behind. Um, and so we're going to start out with one of our favorites, a couple of stories that concern our feathered friends. Now, one of the things that I have been doing that has really helped me in uh, these times is that I have been enjoying immensely watching and listening to the birds that come to my bird feeder. I find it very soothing. I even saw a tiny little toad this morning while filling the bird feeder right before the rain started again. And so, as you know, probably... Uh, amphibians are definitely an indicator species. So if there's a little toad hanging out um, in my front yard, chances are it's pretty okay there. So that's really nice. 
And so I can even tell that these small, basically domestic birds, I mean, they're, they're very much uh, sort of domesticated in a wild sense. Uh, a lot of these birds are very much dependent these days on bird feeders. They can definitely survive without them, but, um, you know, your sparrows, your house finches, uh, your morning doves, those kinds. Um, I can definitely tell that even they're pretty smart. Uh, so for instance, I have uh, a bird feeder with four perches, but the birds compete for the top two because, and I presume, absolutely, but I assume that they realize that the seeds higher up are fresher. So those top uh, perches are better because you're accessing fresher seeds there. But those birds are rather dull compared to the subject of our first story. African gray parrots are known for their high intelligence and ability to understand and use human language. So for instance, um, Alex was the really famous language using African gray parrot. He passed away just recently in the last couple of years. Um, and so it's not really surprising though, considering that A, they can live for more than 50 years and they have a large brain to body ratio. So as we're coming to realize, it's not just about how, um, how large your brain is in absolute size, but it is the brain to body ratio that really gives you an idea of how smart an animal could potentially be. And so one such parrot, Griffin, has been able to beat 21 Harvard students. Now, these are Harvard undergrads, uh, and he was able to beat them at a classic memory game. So in a study published in May in Scientific Reports, researchers reported on the results of Griffin besting or tying both Harvard students and younger children aged six to eight at the shell game. And so colored pom-poms were hidden under plastic cups and then shuffled in increasingly complex ways. Griffin matched or outperformed the students in 12 of 14 trials. Think about it. Gray Parrot outperforms Harvard undergrads. That's pretty freaking awesome, lead study author Hrag Palian, a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, told the Harvard Gazette. We had students concentrating in engineering, pre-med, this, that, seniors, and he just kicked their butts. <laughs> Okay, so Griffin was not just plucked from the wild uh, the other day. He has been raised by Irene Pepperberg, a Harvard psychologist and co-author of the paper, since he was just seven and a half weeks old. So he's definitely been trained. So we can't dispute that. But you can only train an animal to do things that they have the cognitive capacity to do. And so he's now 22 years old and has been previously taught to reproduce 30 words, approximately, and understand at least 40. And so already having an understanding of human language, Griffin didn't need much coaching. Pepperberg simply demonstrated the concept for a few rounds the same way she did for the human subjects. 
all adults, including Griffin, completed 120 rounds of the game, while the children performed 36 rounds spread all across 14 trials, which were progressively harder as the day went on. The test began by asking participants to memorize the position of just two pom-poms hidden under two cups, which were not moved. The test ended with four pom-poms under four cups shuffled four times. Once the pom-poms were shuffled, participants were asked were asked to match the pom-pom from a from one that the researchers chose from a separate pile. Griffin had a higher accuracy rate than all of the children in all of the 14 trials. Harvard students' performance dropped as they reached three pom-poms shuffled three or four times. Griffin continued to score perfectly until four pom-poms shuffled three or four times were introduced. At that point, his accuracy did dip below that of the students. Now, the test was meant to explore the participants' working memory via manipulation. Now, in this context, manipulation means being able to manipulate stored memory. Not only did they need to remember what pom-pom was under which cup, but to manipulate that memory as the cups were shuffled. The fact that Griffin had such a successful showing suggests that manipulation may be an ancient cognitive trait that developed millions of years ago in a common ancestor of birds and mammals. Previously, Griffin had shown that he could employ inference by exclusion. And so in this setup, two empty cups were shown to Griffin and then the researcher showed a cashew. The researchers then hid the cups from uh, Griffin's view, placed a cashew in one, in one and placed covers on both of them. They then removed the screen and showed that one cup was empty. Griffin then immediately took the lid off the other cup to gain access to the cashew. The idea here is a logical leap that there must be a reward in either cup A or cup B. If it's not in cup A, then it must be in cup B. This is really about logic, Pepperberg said. In the wild, non-humans must make these kinds of choices when they decide on things like, where should I forage? I saw other creatures eating food in this area. If there's nothing right here, I should deduce that something is nearby. Now, the team went on to suggest that, well, two cups is a too simple of a test. And so the researchers then developed a three cup test where one reward is hidden in a single cup and another is placed in one of two cups to one side of the first cup. When faced with a choice, participants should choose the single cup. This tests certainty versus mere possibility, a precursor to exclusion. Until children are around two and a half years old, they actually fail this test, uh, as well as great apes also fail this test. Griffin outperformed five-year-olds on the test. On the task, they then moved on to four cups. Two pairs are presented, each having one reward in one cup. The participant. The participant is shown that one cup of a pair is empty, and therefore they should then choose the other cup in the pair for a guaranteed reward versus the 50-50 chance of a cup from the other pair. Griffin was able to crush this test as well, so they made it even harder. Basically, we forced him to gamble, 
Pepperberg said, for a small percentage of trials, we would put nothing on one side and show him an empty cup on that side. So if he wanted a reward and understood the system, he'd know that now he couldn't go to the cup next to the empty one. Instead, he'd have to gamble on the 50-50 side. And he hated it, but he did it on all the trials in the subset. They then went even another step further by offering either a guaranteed nut or the chance at a Skittle, his favorite treat. He gambled on several trials, but if he failed on one trial, he would not gamble on the next. Again, the research is not only meant to show that the parrot is smart, but also to explore the origins of cognition itself. Birds are separated from us by 300 million years of evolution, and their brains are organized differently than ours, Pepperberg said. That's why this was so exciting, because we were able to show that Griffin was working at the level of a five-year-old on a task which even great apes would not likely succeed. So hooray for Griffin! (laughs) And I hope that they continue to find new and exciting ways to show off his talents, Because after all, he's basically just a teenager at this point. (laughs) Okay, let us move on now to another amazing feat by birds. So this time we're not looking at cognition, but rather the ability to soar without flapping their wings. New research shows that the Andean condor, the largest soaring bird, can stay in the air for five hours hours and travel more than 100 miles without flapping their wings. The birds can weigh up to 33 pounds and have a wingspan of up to 10 feet. Research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences show that the scavengers can stay aloft for many hours, conserving energy as they scan the ground for carrion. The birds spend the majority of their time soaring on updrafts and other air currents, and only 1.3% of their time flapping their wings, according to co-author Emily Shepard, a biologist at Swansea University. From 2013 to 2018, Shepard and colleagues tracked eight Andean condors, which are, of course, huge uh, vultures. And so, again, they eat carrion, so they're constantly trying to find... uh, signs of dead animals on the ground um, and that is their main food source and so they tracked them uh, near Bariloche, Argentina and so the team attached flight recorders capable of logging the wing beats made by the birds during flight in order to measure the effects of different weather conditions on the birds ability to fly. The researchers gathered around 250 hours of data they found that 75% of the birds flapping occurred during takeoff. This suggests that taking off is very costly, energetically speaking, and therefore makes sense that it's in the best interest of the bird to stay aloft for as long as they can after having taken off so that they don't have to re-expend that energy. Soaring birds fly under weather conditions that allow them to stay airborne with the absolute minimum of movement costs, but there are times when these birds are must resort to extremely costly flapping flight, explained Hannah Williams, a co-author of the study and a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior in a press release. 
Now, they found that the animals were able to soar in both calm and windy conditions, with more flapping in the early morning as thermal updrafts began to form and rise slowly. Our findings suggest that in-flight decisions of when and where to land and when to move between airflows are crucial, as not only do condors need to be able to take off again after landing, but unnecessary landings will add significantly to their overall flight costs, said Williams. And so the researchers hope to discern how the heavy birds make in-flight decisions and how they're able to bounce from one thermal to the next, seemingly without effort. And the research may also help us understand how, for instance, early avian dinosaurs like Archaeopteryx were able to fly despite having quite large bodies for a flyer. Now, of course, being if you're listening in the valley, you have almost certainly seen red-tailed hawks uh, soaring or turkey vultures, which are even closer to the um, condors. And so they have huge wingspans and they can just circle around for, it seems, forever. Um, and so they're doing all of that using this thermal energy that comes up and basically gives them lift. And so this is something that big birds have developed. And it's interesting to have this really close um, understanding of how condors, the largest of these animals, do it. Um, I think turkey vultures are not nearly as heavy as condors, I would assume. Um, I didn't, I'm sorry, I forgot to look up how heavy uh, turkey vultures are, but I suspect they're not as heavy. I think the condor at up to 33 pounds is pretty hefty. Um, <laughs> I think that even albatrosses are much less hefty. I think that um, it's really interesting, but it's also just such a great adaptation to be able to soar like that. But we are going to move now from birds to cats. And so a new study suggests that the ancestors of modern cats moved into Europe with early farmers, but that they were not pets. Nitrogen isotope ratios in the bones of six cats from the Neolithic from Neolithic Poland suggest that they preyed on rodents that ate humans' crops, but they were not living in close human contact as they were not eating similarly to humans and dogs. The researchers compared their lifestyle to that of modern coyotes. Domestic cats trace their lineage back to Near Eastern wildcats, and in fact their DNA has strayed fairly uh, little from that of these early wild cousins, which actually still exist. You can actually still see uh, Near Eastern wildcats. They are adorable. Um, and so I have a mackerel tabby, and that is a pretty standard coloration for um, these original wild cats that are still out there. Now, this is, of course, in stark contrast to dogs, which have several possible points of domestication and origin, which are constantly being fought over, practically, it seems. Uh, there seems to be a new paper every uh, year about, no, dogs started here, no, dogs started there. <laughs> but cats were very, were very, uh, very straightforward about. 
And so around 5,300 BCE, cats began to prey on the mice, voles, and hazel grouse that began to munch on early human grain crops and in storages. Between 4200 and 2300 BCE, farmers from Central Asia moved into Europe where they mixed with people who were already living in the area. When they moved, some wild cats tagged along for the ride. Now, archaeologists have found Near Eastern wild skeletons from this period in Poland where they've been following their prey, rather than being taken purposefully by humans. According to archaeologist Magdalena Krzyzitzer of Nicholas Copernicus University, Krzyzitzer and her colleagues examined the chemical signature of the bones found in southern Poland and realized that they most closely, closely resembled the signature of the bones of crop-eating rodents. The team looked at the ratio of nitrogen isotopes. As nutrients pass up the food chain, nitrogen-15 tends to be passed up more than the stabler nitrogen-14, so comparing the ratio of the two can help tell what animals were eating. Domestic crops are even richer in N15 as well because it tends to get replaced in the soil via fertilizer. So high nitrogen 15 ratios suggest a diet high in domesticated plants or the animals which eat these plants. When Krasikar and her colleagues looked at the isotope ratio for the humans in nearby settlements and their dogs, they found that they actually had even higher rates of nitrogen 15. This suggests that the humans were sharing their highly domesticated foodstuffs with their canine companions, but not with cats. Cats seem to have been more commensal animals rather than pets. Now, cats were learning to use human grain domestication as an easy way to obtain prey, but they were still hunting more wild game. Ecologists call this synanthropy, and it's how modern urban foxes, coyotes, raccoons, and crows live. Now, of course, this was a step on the way to domestication for cats, but it's not until the Roman period in Poland, some 3,000 years later, that the first cat burials are found and the ratio of N15 isotopes at that point much more closely resemble humans and dogs. Now, there were actually already wild cats in Europe, the European cats simply seem to have added domestic crop pests to a wide variety of foodstuffs that they subsisted on rather than switching to them almost exclusively. This may help explain why the Near East wildcats became the ancestors of our current feline friends rather than those already in Europe. Now there's still much we don't know. The skeletons surveyed in the present study were found in caves in the hills overlooking the lowlands where the people were farming. They either lived in those caves or were dragged there by larger predators. The settlements were 19 to 28 miles away from the large farming settlements in the nearby valley. This suggests the cats had a wide range. However, it does not rule out that some cats lived in human homes or food storage structures. Simply that as of yet, there is no evidence for that at this time period. Okay. We are going to take a break and do some PSAs and show promos, and then we're going to come back and talk about another cat that was found and what that tells us about uh, nomadic people on the Silk Road. So please do stay tuned. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Let's move ahead in time now and talk about a cat skeleton that shows clear signs of having been cared for. Archaeologists in Kazakhstan have discovered the well-preserved remains of a cat that died over a thousand years ago along the Silk Road. The cat had a hard life but showed signs of having been taken care of by nomadic pastoralists, which is unusual. The almost complete skeleton was found within the medieval city of Zahankent in southern Kazakhstan. An international research team, which included scientists from Martin Luther University, Hall Wittenberg in Germany, uh, Korkut Atta Kaiserlorda State University in Kazakhstan, and other institutions, note that the skeleton included the cat's entire skull, lower jaw, parts of its upper body, legs, and four vertebrae. Radiocarbon dating of the femur suggests a date between 775 and 940 CE. At this time, the area was occupied by the Aguz people, a pastoralist Turkic tribe. The city was located at an important point on the Silk Road between Asia and the Mediterranean world. The Oguz people were a medieval Turkic people that lived in the Central Asian steppes of modern-day Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and parts of Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan in the medieval period, wrote Ashley Haruda, the first author of the new study and a scientist at MLU. We know that they were nomadic and relied upon large herds of sheep, goats, cattle, and horses for their economy, similar to the ways that people had been living on the steppe for thousands of years before that, she told Gizmodo. And at least one of them had a cat, which is unusual given the nomadic lifestyle and lack of a utilitarian need for cats. With a diet rich in animal protein rather than grains, the people would have had little need for animals that are territorial and mostly useful for killing crop pests. However, according to the paper in scientific reports, the cat appears to have been deliberately buried, which is why the skeleton is in such good condition, and it was also clearly taken care of. 
The researchers performed physical, genetic, and isotopic analyses of the skeleton in order to discern more about its life. DNA evidence shows that it is definitely a domesticated cat, belonging to the feral species Felis catus L, and was not related closely to the wild steppe cats of the region. Now, the age could not be determined, but was most likely, but it's most likely that the cat was at least a year old when it died. 3D images and x-rays showed that the cat suffered several broken bones, but that those healed and the cat recovered. The cat had lost most of its teeth, a common occurrence for many domestic cats, including one of my own, and thus probably couldn't have hunted or feed on its own. Isotopic research confirmed that the cat had an unusually high amount of protein in its diet compared to other cats and dogs living during the same period. All of the evidence taken together, but especially the bones, indicate that this animal suffered a lot of trauma in its life, but not only did it survive, it continued to thrive, explained Haruda. The most informative for us was the loss of the teeth. We could see that it had lost its canines and some of its other teeth completely and that the root and that the tooth roots had healed over. The loss of these teeth would have made it difficult for the cat to hunt successfully. Now, in addition to the extensive fractures and other trauma would have uh, made it very difficult for the animal to move on its own while it was healing. And so it was clearly taken care of by a human. The researchers suggest that the animal might have been considered as more of an exotic pet than as an animal with a practical use. This suggests that cats may have been a trade good that were exchanged along the Silk Road route and suggests that they were becoming popular at an earlier stage in the region than previously thought. The authors suggest that the cat is, quote, evidence for a fundamental shift in the nature of human-animal relationships within this region. So that's really cool. Okay, let us turn now to one more animal story, this time about deep-sea fish that are able to be ultra-black and almost invisible. Smithsonian researchers and a team of collaborators have discovered that the skin of some deep-sea fish is one of the blackest materials known in nature. The ultra-black fish absorb light so efficiently that even when brought into the lab and spotlighted, they still resemble silhouettes with little discernible features. In the deep, even with bioluminescence surrounding them, they can actually become basically invisible. Writing in Current Biology, a team of scientists led by Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History research zoologist Karen Osborne and Duke University biologist Sanke Jonsen explain how a unique arrangement of pigment-packed granules allowed some fish to absorb as much as 99.95% of all light that hits their skin. Osborne started out trying to simply photograph some of the neat fish she and her colleagues had collected from trawl nets used to sample the deep sea. She became quickly stymied by their inability to be properly photographed. It didn't matter how you set up the camera or lighting. They just sucked up all the light, she noted. They then began to examine the fish and found that the reason the cameras could not pick up detail was due to the incredible absorption and reflection of light by the skin of these fish. 
because they live in the deep sea, such an ability is a real advantage. Any light attracts immediate attention. Now, some animals use this to their advantage, such as lanternfish and animals with bioluminescence, including defensive bioluminescence, as seen in some squid. But most fish have some form of bioluminescence in the deep sea in order to attract mates, distract predators, or, as with the squid, bioluminescent ink to uh, distract predators or to lure prey, such as the lanternfish with its antenna-like lure. But on the other hand, if you want to blend in with the infinite blackness of your surroundings, sucking up every photon that hits you is a great way to go, Osborne said. And so the effect is achieved by using melanin in a unique way. Melanosomes, which are tiny sacs of melanin pigment, are packed into pigment cells, which in turn form a tight arrangement very close to the skin surface. Any light one cell doesn't absorb is bounced towards another cell to absorb it. Effectively, what they've done is make a super efficient, super thin light trap, Osborne said. Light doesn't bounce back. Light doesn't go through. It just goes into this layer and it's gone. Now, fish are not the only ones who have developed this neat trick. Some birds and butterflies had developed feather and scale pigmentations that perform the same task. For instance, there's a bird of paradise that has ultra black feathers on most of its body in order to accentuate the fact that it has a head and chest of bright turquoise. And that's generally how um, birds and butterflies use the black is to accentuate other bright colors. These pigment-containing structures are packed into the skin cells like a tiny gumball machine, where all of the gumballs are of just the right size and shape to trap life within the machine, said Alexander Davis, a co-author of the study and a doctoral student in biology at Duke University. Now that's the fish. In the case of the feathers or scales, a layer of melanin is combined with tiny tubes or box-shapes or box-shaped structures that capture the light. Now, the fish seem to basically have evolved a more efficient system. This is the only system that we know of that's using the pigment itself to control any initially unabsorbed light, according to Osborne. However, it seems to be a common practice among these fish, with 16 species of fish which are not closely related showing this adaptation. And now this is one that actually could have practical applications. Right now, ultra-black materials are made more like those of the feathers and scales, and can be both extremely delicate and expensive to, imp to um, improve, or are just expensive in and of themselves. And so, it turns out, though, that they are necessary for sensitive optical equipment. Now, this new strategy could help that. Instead of building some kind of structure that traps the light, if you were to make the absorbing pigment the right size and shape, you could achieve the same absorption potentially a lot cheaper and make a material a lot less fragile, she said, which of course would be a boon for these optics. All right, let us switch now to human prehistory. Uh, let's start way back before the modern before modern humans and consider a hand axe, hewn from a hippopotamus bone, dating to around 1.4 million years ago. 
Hand axes are a fairly ubiquitous part of pre-modern human tool use. The tool consists of two sides or faces with a sharp edge at one end. You hold the body of the tool in your hand and use the sharp edge for cutting. These are usually made from stone or flint. However, the new specimen found at the Konso Formation in southern Ethiopia was crafted from the femur bone of a hippo. Tahuko University archaeologist Katsuhiro Sano and his colleagues were working in the area when they found just the second ever bone hand axe known to science and one of just a few bone tools from sites over one million years old in any known collection. The researchers believe the tool would have been made by a Homo erectus. Homo erectus was a lot like modern humans, and so this isn't surprising. The specimen is just over five inches long and quite expertly created. The toolmaker was able to flake a large piece of bone off the side of the hippo's femur, and you can still see the outer surface of the bone on one of the faces of the piece. This compares to what is called the Esculian approach to making tools. Start with a large blank in the right general shape and then flake off bits until you get the tool you want. This is actually a fairly advanced technique which requires fine handling to make sure that you don't chip off too much of the material and that you chip off the right part of the material. And of course, with a hand axe, you need your bone to be a pretty big bone. And so the only other bone hand axe of this style is from an elephant bone, which was found in Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania and dates from 1.3 to 1.6 million years ago. Finely shaped bone tools like bone hand axes are extremely rare, wrote Sano and his colleagues. The tool was chipped on alternating faces to create a relatively straight cutting edge, around two inches long. It also suggests that these late cousins were knowledgeable about materials and ideas like sharpness and durability. Now, while the tool make, why, why the toolmaker chose a hippo bone is unknown. It may be that they were temporarily cut off from good stone sources, apparently in the area uh, at several times during the uh, early uh, Neolithic um, time period, there were volcanic eruptions that would cut them off from good places to get stone that was really suitable for stone tools. Um, but it turns out that the area where this was found would have also been really sort of marshy, swampy land, uh, which is probably pretty, really good for hippos. And so there might just have been abundant hippos. And it could even be that the hippo was actually hunted by these um, people, though obviously there's no evidence for that whatsoever. There's just the bone. It might be that they just came across a hippo uh, skeleton and one of them thought that might make a good tool. We have no ability to know, obviously. Um, and so we we can only speculate. And Unfor that's unfortunate, obviously, because we want to know what made you think to take a hippo bone. But alas, there's only so much we can know from the bone itself. 
Microscopic analysis suggests, though, that the tool was used for butchering animals, which is basically what hand axes at the time were used for. At Conso, this is a time period where when significant technological developments in lithic technology were occurring, wrote the authors. And so basically, it was this development of a new form of uh, lithic technology using this more advanced um, technique where you started off with the blank and then moved on, whereas in earlier times, you would either just use the stone itself or you would actually use the flakes that you had flaked off um, instead of trying to achieve an actual real tool that was um, shaped for your use. All right, now let's move forward in time quite a bit. Um, I want to wrap up tonight with two stories that have kind of been uh, front and center in the last uh, week or two. So we're actually going to talk about the slightly uh, newer one first. Let's talk about the Hiscus, the Hyksos, oh dear, <laughs> the Hyksos, there we go, of Egypt. These 15th dynasty rulers had been thought to be invaders from outside of Egypt, but new evidence suggests that this was actually an internal takeover. Now, of course, the first idea about this was always a little bit tenuous because there was really little evidence to suggest that any major battles or invasions had happened. And so because they were different, people just assumed, oh, it had to have been an invasion. But according to a paper in PLOS One by Chris Stantis of Bournemouth University in the UK and colleagues, the idea that the Hyksus were foreigners from the Near East should be questioned, at least in the sense of invading foreigners. Now, they ruled Egypt from 1638 to 1530 BCE and are considered the first foreign rulers of Egypt. Stantis and her team collected enamel samples from the teeth of 75 humans buried at the ancient Hyksos capital city of Tel El Daba in the northeast Nile Delta. They compared the ratios of strontium isotopes in the teeth to environmental ratios from Egypt and elsewhere in the region. They found that the people came from a variety of places, with a large percentage being non-local. Of the teeth from 36 skeletons buried in the 30, 350 years before the Hyksos rose to power, 24, both male and female, were foreign-born. Of the 35 people examined from the Hyksos period, it shows a similar pattern of immigration as they rose to power. And so this pattern actually suggests a multicultural landscape where an internal group, the Hyksos, eventually rose to become rulers of the land. Archaeological chemistry, specifically isotope analysis, shows us first-generation migration during a time of major cultural transformations in ancient Egypt. Rather than the old scholastic theories of invasion, we see more people, especially women, migrating to Egypt before Hyksos rule, suggesting economic and cultural changes leading to foreign rule rather than violence. 
And so the people have isotopes that suggest they came from a region that stretches from Syria in the north to Israel in the south. And so basically, it seems that the children of immigrants took an opportunity. Uh, at this time, the Egyptian pharaohs were struggling to maintain power to take over part of the empire. Now, they were definitely a distinct people, with artwork depicting them as wearing long, multicolored clothes, unlike the Egyptian uh, rulers and other Egyptian natives who were much more likely to be clothed in just basic white linens. Um, and so they also had names that were most more closely related to people in Southwest Asia. So they were definitely from another uh region initially. And so the Hyksos ruled for about a hundred years before the Egyptian pharaohs recaptured the area. What's interesting is that there is a suggestion that they were banished from the area, and this may have actually been the inspiration for the Exodus story. Of course, there's a lot of things that might have been the inspiration for the Exodus story, but it's another one to add to the pile. (laughs) All right. So finally, New research suggests that Native Americans voyaged to Polynesia, according to new DNA studies. So it seems that some 300 years before the Europeans and conquistadors arrived in the Americas, indigenous South Americans sailed to Polynesia and interbred with the inhabitants there. Publishing in Nature, the paper says that people from modern-day Colombia voyaged to the South Pacific around 1200 CE, confirming a long-held idea that there had been a cultural and DNA exchange between the two cultures, despite a previous lack of hard evidence. Now, the first clues came from as far back as the 18th century, when Captain Cook noted the presence of sweet potatoes on South Pacific islands, which was odd because they originated in South America, as far as we knew. However, a study a few years ago suggested that sweet potatoes actually reached Polynesia some 100,000 years ago, before humans even arrived in the islands. But evidence of Polynesian DNA has been found in the Brazilian Batacudos tribe, and the word for sweet potato in Polynesian is kuumala, which close, closely represents the Quechua word kumara. We also know from the famous voyage of the Contiki by, by Thor Heyerdahl that the voyage was possible using a fairly primitive raft. Heyerdahl and his crew rafted from Peru to the Tuamotu Islands in French Polynesia. Of course, he also then argued that Polynesians were thus descended from indigenous South Americas, which is still largely incorrect. The new study looked at the genomes of 807 people from 17 Pacific Island populations and 15 Pacific Coast South American indigenous groups. Through this research, we wanted to construct the ancestral roots that have shaped the diversity of these populations and answer deep, long-standing questions about the potential contact between Native Americans and Pacific Islanders, connecting two of the most understudied regions of the world, said Andres Moreno Estrada, a co-author of the study and a geneticist at Mexico's National Laboratory of Genomics for Biodiversity in a press release. The researchers used a series of algorithms to identify key genetic markers known as identical by descent segments, which show common ancestry. The analysis showed a single content, a contact event 
at the turn of the 13th century, most likely between 1150 and 1240 CE. We found identical by descent segments of Native American ancestry across several Polynesian islands, explained, they explained in the press release. It was conclusive evidence that there was a single shared contact event. The mixed population then migrated to Rapa Nui, uh, or Easter Island, uh, sometime around 1380 CE. The indigenous people in present-day Colombia were a close match for Polynesians, suggesting that this was the starting point. The end point might have been in the Marquesas or the Tuamotu Islands in central eastern Polynesia, which would suggest a voyage of almost 4,300 miles. The paper is significant not only in its main result, there was human transport before Colombia human transport from Colombia to eastern Polynesia, which is a novel, intriguing hypothesis, but it is also significant in that it provides a considerable amount of data and explicit methodology to an area of science that is rife with speculation and unsubstantiated pet theories. Robert Scotland, a professor of systematic botany at the University of Oxford and a co-author of the Sweet Potato Study from 2018, wrote in an email to Gizmodo. Now, the paper notes specifically that it may have been Polynesians that reached South America and mingled there before returning home or took individuals from South America home with them. And one major drawback is that the study relies only on modern DNA. Further research using archaeological remains would help be helpful to bolster the work. Some will question how odd it seems that Colombia was the strongest source, given that several other areas on the South American coast are much closer, Scotland said. How robust the results are will be demonstrated over time as more samples are added and the community has opportunity to reflect on the results and reanalyze the data. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.